Hey, fellow flailers, welcome to another episode of Flail Forward. My name is Rob. I have with me tonight Catrice. Can, can they maybe maybe say so they can hear you? Oh, if you want to get fancy about it, hello. All right, so we have Catrice with us tonight. Cavoir. I don't approve of your fan nickname, but it's fine. Okay. Mark's with us tonight. Hello. Hello. And we have uh, some special guests tonight. We have Vincent Baker and Maggie Baker. I'm sorry, am I pronouncing your name right? Maggie. Maggie. So you were very close. Okay, great, cool. Meg is also fine. Meg is fine, great. Perfect. Vincent and Meg Baker. And v Vincent, do you go by Vincent or Vinny yeah. or Vinny the Apocalypse or? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and they're going to talk to us tonight about their new game, uh, Under Hollowed Hills, which is on Kickstarter right now. And uh, it's a Powered by the Apocalypse game, but it's got some pretty interesting shifts and differences from the standard Powered by the Apocalypse games that you may be familiar with. So we're going to talk to them about that. We're going to talk to them about, uh, ooh, a lot of stuff, because they are some interesting designers, and we've been wanting to pick their brains for quite some time. So uh, without further ado, very big flail forward, eh, flail forward welcome. That's part of it. <laughs> Vincent Maggie Baker. Hey. Nice. Yay. Yay. <laughs> you can't all come me at the same time like that unless there's like cake involved. <laughs> now I have to bake a cake afterwards. Now I know what I'm doing at like three in the morning. Oh gosh. <laughs> so yeah, guys, um the, the Kickstarter is going pretty well. I'm uh I'm I'm a backer. I Yay, um, thank you. You're welcome. And uh I backed it, well, I mean, I backed it because it's, well, my wife heard the pitch of fairies in a theater troupe and was like, you're, we're getting that, right? And, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yes, yes, we are. And uh, so I'm, I was really interested in the, because this to me reads like Midsummer Night's Dream, the game. Yay! Okay, good. All right, then. Mission accomplished. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I was. It could also it could also read like Muppet Show the game, you know. I'm also on board with that. Just like, saying. <laughs> could you have a Statler and World Waldorf character like? Well, the, the... Shh, don't say that too loud. Ooh. Vincent might hear you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> uh, so, so when I got it. Um, I, I brought it over here and we were, you know, us, we were trying to like uh, figure it out and check it out and like what's, what's interesting about it. And I actually didn't understand what it was trying to do for like an hour. Like I okay. tried to talk him through it and I did not do a great job. So you <laughs> can try to fix what I broke. Tell us, tell us about the game, I guess. And, uh, no, I want to hear about. Yeah, we want to hear. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, but but the thing that really that clicked for me was when Catrice was like, "Oh, it's it's got the same narrative structure as Minecraft," and I was like, "But Minecraft doesn't have a narrative structure." And she was like, "Exactly." And I was like, "Oh, it's social Legos." It's, <laughs> huh? And I was like, "That actually, that actually really." I mean, this is based on just the playbooks that were released, so. So you've seen the six playbooks. Did you did you look at the like the obvious plays? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. And so what struck me about it is like so one for one thing, there's no like advancement or experience that I can tell that we could see. Is that well, sort of okay? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So 
so I can say a little bit about that. Yeah, go ahead. You know, you you start playing summer and you advance here and toward wind and back toward summer or in between. And, you know, it's not like a summer, winter, summer, winter, but you you move back and forth between summer and winter. And uh, as you do that, you change your plays, your moves um, to reflect how you feel about that change moment by moment. It's really about those those emotional cycles more than it is about improvement, obviously. Mm -hmm. Okay, wait, 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 wait. So does um, that mean that you change your loadout a different way each time you go through the cycle, or is it the same? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. No, every every time you take a step toward winter or a step toward summer, you erase one from one play and add it to a different play, and it can be, you know, you can go back and forth all the time, or you can, you can be very deliberate yeah, about that, depending on how. Yeah how you feel about it every time. Yeah. You know, this this time moving toward winter might make you, let's say, more violent, but next time moving toward winter might make you more indrawn or, you know, however it happens to come out each time. Oh, I see. That's that's really interesting. I think the first time I'd read through it, I thought you kind of chose what your winter aspect was, what your summer aspect was, and then you oscillated between the two. But this seems like it's kind of always moving um, fluidly. Yeah, yeah. And I want to mm. clarify there. I mean, like, if I'm making a character and I have as my summer, um, as one of my summer affects, uh, pale green, and one of my winter affects is sort of a a, a coal gray, those those will stay those are like inherent to me what's going to flex around is the numbers in all of the different plays right mm -hmm. uh does that yep. make yeah, sense okay yeah. but then also you don't have to go all the way to winter but return to summer you exactly. uh, you you do uh step you know in either direction at any time uh just depending on how how the game turns out like how things go and the, the steps are for everyone who's playing together, right? So it's sort of transitions slowly from one season to the next for every player at the same pace, or? Um... Sometimes it's it's all at once, but most of the time uh, you get out of sync with each other. Most of the time you step some way. Um, you know, we want to make sure that everybody is changing, and that means that sometimes you all change at once. but. Uh, uh, very often, one person will change abruptly, and another person will change more slowly. And yeah, I mean, part of part of the the drama of the game, and if you think about the Muppet Show, right, where you have the the constant of the cast and crew in these changing situations. So part of the drama of the game is that your emotional cycles get out of sync, and then resync, and get out of sync, and then resync. Mm. Uh, you know as the as the troll my relationship with the winding rose when we're close means one thing and then as we move further apart uh means something else and if we're both moving toward winter coincidentally or for whatever reason if we're both moving toward winter sort of in pace that means something different from if i suddenly am plunging toward winter or sailing toward winter you know it doesn't have to be a downward but if I'm suddenly moving toward winter and and the the winding rose is not, hmm. 
So is that is that creating like an emotional distance there? Is that what that's supposed to represent? Well, I mean, it might be that as the troll with the winding rose, it might be that we are emotionally closer when our seasonal cycles are out of sync than when they're in sync. Um, you know, it, it might be that we can't stand each other when we're both in winter, but when we're out of sync, we can get along. Um, but what will happen is that those those cycles and those rhythms will put us in sync and out of sync emotionally mm. as well as seasonally. Is that the purpose of the uh, the sort of sails on the pinwheel? The sails on the pinwheel wheel are for the place you perform. And those so um you have you won't have seen this. This is this is something we haven't previewed yet. Um when the circus performs, we get to collectively make a bunch of choices, like at the at the sort of climax of our performance. So this is after we've gotten the lay of the land, it's after we've figured out what the river queen wants and what the the you know the giants piggies want or whatever wherever we're performing so then we'll we'll plan this performance and then we'll put on the show for them and we make by voting we make a bunch of decisions about what will happen sort of as the result of our efforts to to put on the show and one of the things that we can do uh, as the as the circus is control the flow of seasons through that place like so so the one of the examples I've been using is the giant's island, right? And it's in summer and the giant is lazing around watching his apples ripen, waiting for harvest today, right? He's tending his piggies and harvest day is the first of autumn or whatever. And so uh, slaughtering day, pig, pig, eating, day. pig eating day. Um, and so when we perform there, depending on what we want from the giant, what the giant wants from us, what the piggies want, you know, however we decide to play that situation, we might decide that no, we're going to leave it in summer. No, we're not going to move towards slaughtering day. Or we might decide that the giant wants slaughtering day. Here comes slaughtering day! Hooray! You know. Um, so that's one of the decisions we make, and that's the the seasonal pinwheel. Um, so are the fae actually in control of the seasons in some way? Then. Oh yeah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> the form that the fae circus has to uh, manipulate the season where they perform. It's how they leave it. You know, if we're performing in summer, how we leave, you know, you married people all who have been our gracious audience here, we get to decide whether you now go into a long lingering summer or whether you're just gonna go straight on to autumn without hitting those other parts of the sail. Huh. Um, yeah, hmm. cool. That's that's really interesting. I, I think um, it's it's cool to look at from the perspective of how the game kind of propels itself forward through mm -hmm. the, the seasons, as opposed to I guess what uh, the traditional RPG structure, which is always looking at your character in terms of how do I improve myself, how do I move forward in things that I'm already good at, and how do I continue to excel at that. And this seems very yeah. driven by like um, what this says about the world around us and the people that I'm interacting with. And I think that's why Rob was saying it sort of like a social Legos, because you have all these pieces in play that you're trying to work with everyone else to pushing everything forward. You're building something, but it's really about who you're interacting with and 
what what pieces you're interested in playing with next. Yeah. yeah, absolutely right. You know, and and as the GM, I'm sort of putting this this slightly organized pile of pieces in front of you. You know, this this giant and these piggies and whatever. And I don't have any more plan than you do. Um, I'm just saying, I think I think this giant guy is funny. Let's see what the circus makes of him. You know. Hmm. My mandate as the GM, suddenly I'm the GM now, but, but the GM's mandate <laughs> is to uh, follow the circus wherever it goes and give the circus good times and bad times. And so as I'm preparing where you're going next, I'm thinking, is this a good time or is this a bad time? And I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, on, on the playbook, it says that part of your job is to take the good with the bad. And so my job as the GM is to give you the good with the bad, give you the bad with the good. Hmm. Do you do you mechanize that in any way as the GM, or do you have, uh, you know, because because Apocalypse World and, and Dungeon World and so forth have like soft moves that the GM has in order to um, react to the players or, or or prompt them? Does are is that a similar scenario going on here, or is there more freeform than? <laughs> yeah it's it's softer than apocalypse world okay um you know where like my job is just to describe this giant and tell you what this giant is doing at at this very moment right um my job is to always come to where you are right now and say where you are right now and then to say how do you want to play it um and to find out how you all want to play it how you each individually want to play it um so, there's, so what gives there's the GM the ability to say, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, there's, I was going to say there's a system for creating the place where we're going to perform um, that gives me, just it, it, it just makes sure that I, I have stuff to say. Um, but there's not a, there's not a, a structure for, like, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't lead you through it. Even even as much as I don't lead you through it in Apocalypse World as the GM, I don't lead the players through it. Even less do I lead the players through it. I'm always saying, I don't know, there's a giant and sitting on top of the house and he's looking out at his apple trees. How do you want to play it? You know. Is the freedom to do that, does that come from sort of like because like a downside to that 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 people might think of would or at least that i'm thinking of right now is that in most games it, that's hard to do because you are trying to create an experience that interlocks with a bunch of numbers and uh -huh. if you define something in the game but don't attach numbers to it there's a kind of like nebulousness that comes along with it where it's like it's hard it, it becomes weirdly difficult to interact with on some level and because this kind of game doesn't need to attach numbers to the npcs in any way i mean that which is very similar to apocalypse world the npcs existed as sort of a what a prompt to yeah for the players to do something yeah. um yeah. and so in this the 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 have you sort of like cut out the middleman been like that well we don't even need moves now really because we can just we the the object of the game is not necessarily getting to a place of conflict and resolving it but it's motion is that more yeah, yeah. no okay. and and you know again as the gm 
my job is to be entertained by the circus. Like, I really want to see how you're going to perform. Like, what show are you going to put on? Is is the Winding Rose going to sing for this giant? Or is the Winding Rose going to be like, no, screw this dude. I do yeah, not that. perform for this dude. Meg, Meg assures <laughs> me that the Winding Rose is not going to perform for that. <laughs> um, but, like, I'm I'm just like eager to be entertained by those those creative decisions that you make as players. And so I'm there to give you enough texture to to make creative decisions. Um and then just be delighted by by how you make them, what you what you make. So one of the things that's really interesting about uh about that situation uh of the GM creating uh, a space and being like, mm-hmm. how do you how do you play this? Is um, there's a piece here about performance, and that the performance of the characters as they go through their act in the circus is fascinating and fun, and it. All the times that I've played, at least so far, mm-hmm. um, it has some of that effect of watching a performance because we we spent a, a lot of time actually trying to like figure out the mechanics there, like what makes what makes this a game about a circus performance, about a theatrical mm-hmm. stage performance piece, as well as how do these characters interact emotionally and how do they move you know in and out of phase with each other and how do they move in and out of fairyland and the mortal world but still be also a game where you totally get to be juggling flaming clubs in the middle of the ring with the light shining down on you and the the, the audience entranced mm. you know so that's like another piece of the uh, of the 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 heart of the game. It's it's, it's the MC, the the uh, minister of rebels, the the GM, um, creating this space because they're eager to see what you do um, on stage and off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And you know, like the Muppet Show. Half the fun is backstage, and half the fun is the is the performances. Mention like the idea of like say your Rose character just decided not to perform for the giant earlier. Yeah, and I've been thinking on that for a bit, and it's like, is there any kind of prompt from that for like the other players? Like, should they try to force this character to perform? <laughs> like, I so want to know. I don't know. How do you play yeah. that? Oh my god! Are you gonna ride disaster down? Like it's a oh my god! It's a disaster. The wild road, the winding road is not gonna perform. Uh, this is horrible. What are we gonna do? How do you play it? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was running a game at Dramation. Can I can I tell you about a game I ran at Dramation? Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. And um, the nightmare horse had it in for the Wolf King of Winter. Um, the nightmare horse was going to destroy. The Wolf King of Winter just decided two thirds of the way or into the session or a third of the way into the session. Like, I don't know when, I don't know why, just decided that that was enough of this guy. Um, 
and so arranged things actually quite carefully so that when someone in the circus called for volunteers the wolf king was obliged to volunteer huh um and then they go through there's a distinct phase of the game where you plan the show and so they plan the show and they're npc performers that that you use to to pace the the pc uh Hmm. performers and um and so right before the nightmare horse goes on this juggler is on juggling things and you know my my goal there is to make the circus look good so i'm i've you know, I've given the musicians the exact right cues. The juggler is killing it. Everything is groovy. And then I say, shit, there's a, can I swear on this show? I'm, I oh, shouldn't. yeah. Go right um, Yeah. We I have say, said worse. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I say, darn, there's a, no. I, I say, shit, there's a moment of danger here. There's a, the, the juggler is about to ask people to, to volunteer jewels for him to juggle Hmm. and the nightmare horse which would let the wolf king of winter volunteer a jewel instead of stepping into the ring and mess up the nightmare horse's whole carefully arranged thing Mm -hmm. and the nightmare horse is like that that does not happen and like walks in in the middle of this guy's performance cuts off his performance makes this scene like this ugly you can imagine it happening on the scene on the on the stage Mm -hmm. where one of the performers just totally steps on uh, another performer who is behaving well, who's behaving professionally, and the nightmare horse is like, no, this is this is more important than your thing. Huh. Uh, and that was really interesting. I loved watching that happen. So, like, do y'all make the winding rose sing? Like, how are you going to make the winding rose sing? Okay, if you do, <laughs> the song is going to be so pointed and so interesting. It's going to be exquisite in every way, and you're going to regret <laughs> it like mad. Mm. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but that okay. So some something that confused me about this when I was read when I read it, and maybe this is addressed in the in the grander scheme. But absent of any like advancement schedule or or something that doesn't rotate, where do you put the incentive in in, in this game for the players to pull themselves along into the performance, or do you just basically offload all of that to the buy in of picking the game up in the first place? And like, well, you, here's what we're doing. We're putting on a show. If you're not into that, you're not into the game. Or do you have some incentives like in within the game, XP or uh, plot points or some driving force that keeps the players hungry? Or how's that work? No, it's just like there's those three points on the on the playbook. Your job is to play your part in the circus and take the bad with the good, um, make your character vivid, and like if that you're not into it you shouldn't you shouldn't play it but no there's no there's no there's no incentive like you get to make these cool decisions at the at the moment of you know at the at the climax of the performance um like how you how you deal with the season of the place and how you uh there's several i can't can't think of them off my head um whether you stay in fairyland or or move over to the mortal world and whether the entire circus steps toward winter or summer um these are decisions uh you can anyway but if that's not if that's not what you want to do if you don't want to play like i i don't think i can buy you into that with experience points i don't think i can (laughs) 
Well, I, it's it's less about it's less about like enforcing buy-in and more about keeping the action moving. So you're relying upon those those the prompts of the playbooks to impel the action. Then yeah, and like there's a there's a phase of play where you plan your show, yeah. and by the end of that, the the players are eager. I mean, I have seen so far like you know there's a, there's always when when you create a game i love to say when you create a game you create a bell curve of experiences and there is play under that curve of under hollow hills where the players aren't into it and like you kind of when you design a game you accept that um that there's play under that curve that isn't fun that isn't satisfying um but what it looks like so far and how it's testing is uh that by the end of planning that show, you're eager to put on the show. Yeah. Um, um, one of the things that uh, we have sometimes is, um, as gamers, as players, is um, I think a uh, re- resistance to the idea of of pre-play or planning, um, where the idea that we just are all right there, fully, you know, doing the thing this thing and the next thing and it just comes as a surprise um or or we're following the gm's plot or whatever um is definitely an approach but what we're doing with planning a show you know we go through the whole character creation piece so people created their characters and they're interconnected um and then we go through creating a show and by the time you're creating a show you know what your role in the circus is, you know, what your character is, you know, how you express yourself as you go through summer fate, like from summer to winter and what might transition about your presentation in the circus and your relationship to other uh, performers. And then we get to putting together the show. So we're planning out the action. And by, by the time we're through that, we're all excited about it. And that's the driving force um, for that portion. So, you know, Hmm. if like if Rob is the, you know, if uh, if you're the acrobat and Mark is a magician and um, Catrice and I are doing some sort of aerialist thing and, you know, Vincent's doing some feat of strength and might. Mm by the time we've all figured that out and we've put those in order of like, okay, you're going to go and then you're going to go and then I'm going to go that, Oh, this would be a good time to have the, the thistle break wind ensemble do a musical interlude while we change costumes. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we're all there right. for that. Mm-hmm. And we want to see that happen. And while all those things are happening, because there's also moves that are going to happen and there's stuff that the, the, you know, the GM is going to be putting, Things that are interesting, things that are good and bad, like the juggler about to ask for, mm-hmm. for gems from the audience, um, into that mix. So we'll have planned it out. We'll, we're anticipating this thing that we have invested in as a a fun, like, oh, that's going to be a cool show. Let's do that. And having gone into the show, we may know, oh, this is for the Wolf King of Winter. Mm-hmm. This is pretty serious. Or we may know, this is for this is for sally's birthday party she's four and she can see us Mm. and this is so exciting everybody else just thinks we're like some hired clowns but she we know 
and she's in on it. This is so cool. So <laughs> we're invested. Um, and then it, that, that's a driving thing. And by the time you get to the end of the show and incorporating all those bits, you have momentum going on to the next thing. And you know, if you're leaving that, that place, you know, whether you want to leave that in the season or advance the season or whatever, and you have some sense of where you're going next. Hmm. So that's, that's the driving okay. mechanism. Interesting. Yeah. So, so like this, this sort of cyclical play of planning and execution and then, and then um, declaring results is yeah. the driving. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. And it sounds an awful lot like for all your plans that you set up in advance, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunities for monkey wrenches <laughs> to get thrown in the birds. Isn't there just, yeah. isn't there just strangely you know. enough, that description out of all things, now you might actually hate this comparison, but it actually makes me think of Shadowrun of all things. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm totally good with that. It, well, well, because the XP system doesn't make Shadowrun fun to play, but yes, that, that part does. Yeah, no, I, I, I can see that. Almost none of the mechanics make Shadowrun. <laughs> yeah. But the point is, like, the yeah. idea of you're planning like this, well, in this case, you're planning uh, the circus, but it's basically the same concept of, like, pre-planning a heist and then you actually mm -hmm. get into it and everything goes horribly wrong including you're planning the show and the winding rose is on and the giant did something stupid during the trolls performance and now the winding rose decides not yeah, to say yeah whatever mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah no it, absolutely what what made you sort of was that a conscious decision to sort of remove a, a mechanical incentive and see if you could do like have a play cycle drive the drive the action or was this yeah. something that just fell away on, on, on oh okay so it, it wasn't yeah. something that fell away on its own okay you were like let's get rid of mechanical no. incentive. okay yeah i mean when i started working on this game it, it really was like, what is it like to move in and out of fairyland? And originally it was like, how dangerous is that for humans and or fairies? Um, and then working on, you know, incorporating the circus thing, there's there's just so much, um, there's so much about this game that wants to be different from other games we've done mm -hmm. and other games that we are familiar with. Um, it's really exciting to design. It's really different to design. Yeah. I, I think it comes across really well because you're, um, this concept is so like esoteric and weird in itself. The, the fairies and um, it's sort of mysterious in that it's magical and, and strange. And the mechanics themselves are also a little bit unique in that um, the way it's structured and the way you progress through the game is a little different. So it's really interesting. Would you be able to tell us a bit about how it started? Was this really like you started at the concept of the fairy world, like you said, or, or is it the mechanics that really drove you to think of like, this is something that we're seeing in all these games and I wanted to rebel against it and say, let's see if it's just throwing people in a room with the, the right kind of environment and having that propel the action forward. What, what was it for you that really started things off? I think, well, there's... There's like 
four different ways I could answer that. But the one that wants to come to the fore right now really has to do with thinking about the um, sort of intense uh, magical thinking and magical realism games that, you know, role-playing games, live action role-playing pretend games that um, my sister and I did as a child, you know, where mm -hmm. we were fully steeped in fairy tales and um, mythology and legend and living in a place where we had just great, you know, natural spaces and mm -hmm. interesting buildings to, to play in. Um, and hours and hours and days and weeks in which to play. And so thinking about that, like thinking about the intensity of co-creating entire worlds of fairydom in the apple orchard in the backyard and how, how real that became. Um, and this would have been before we started playing Dungeons and Dragons in 1978. Right. Um, that, that that was also possible. And so reaching back to something that was before that, before putting uh, putting systematization, yeah. that's not a word, or maybe it is, whatever, and mechanics and things on, you know, how, how does this go? Like, yeah. What did we do? Right. How did we do that? How did we navigate cycles of engagement and cycles of um, in, how did we reach a, a shared imaginary space yeah. of, you know, yes, we agree that um, that, you know, swing set is the palace mm -hmm. or whatever. And this is the stage and this is the that and the that. So part of it is reaching back into that space as a way of like, how else can people enter into cooperative yeah. original storytelling where they're taking on roles of characters creating worlds together meeting creating and meeting uh challenges having good times and bad times having uh, authentic emotional responses to things that each mm -hmm. other you know brings up and brings into the game so that's that's like one big place for this mm -hmm. um And then, like, then there's other there's other stuff there. There's a bunch of other stuff there. I've said in other places that you know the first the first bit for this game, the first first bit uh, when I started writing instead of just like thinking about this in idle moments, um, I did a setting design for Robin Law's Hillfolk mm -hmm. game, yeah. and. When you're working on someone else's game and someone else's mechanics and someone else's like this is this is the brief that you know yeah I'm excited to have you work on my game here's the brief here's what you need to fill in here's the points you need to hit that can be great but it also is their constraint and mm -hmm. there was like a whole other thing that wanted to come through so that was exciting but the conditions under which I could work were so weird that like it had to be raining. I had to be at Emily and Epi's house and I had to be writing on a like a stenographer's like steno pad in pencil. Hmm. It it was weird. <laughs> um so there's a way in which not only are we looking at 
what has what has been the idea of how a role playing game is and should be and, and you know however that's codified but we're also over this process of this past year and a half or so um we're also consciously inviting that energy yeah um um to to welcome in um our like you know some background of like you know i have all kinds of background of people who thought all this was 100% real mm-hmm. so that's called of kind of kind of interesting and strange too yeah. There's something funny about. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, Sorry, sorry. I do want to get this before I forget because this was very interesting from (laughs) describing this. Was follow up questions. Yeah. (laughs) So you were describing like open role playing and such with your sister, and one thing that I've personally noticed through open role play is often one person just naturally starts creating the setting points, and other players tend to add on to it or modify it, but there's usually one person that almost naturally becomes sort of a pseudo GM, oddly enough. Yeah. But but this is I've only done like open role playing since after D and D. And you mentioned this uh-huh. before you started D and D or be- before it was even really a thing. So does this predate D and D of like just the natural GM? Yeah. Hmm. I think think so too yeah absolutely Um, people we can't help but tell stories it's it's all we do Um, and it it definitely predates D&D but this idea that the GM comes before D&D that that uh, that's a that's a really compelling idea that's really interesting we did I mean we wouldn't call it a GM you'd call it a storyteller you call it like, oh, your grandpa who was really good at telling antidotes, you know, or, you know, your one friend who could always just make whatever you did that day sound more exciting. Well, but even if they're not telling stories, even if it's, even, even if they're not telling stories, even if it's this very role playing thing. Yeah. Uh, it, it hadn't occurred to me to think about you know, whether the, the GM comes before Dungeons and Dragons. That's really interesting. Yeah, it yeah. seems like it, it might actually be one of those almost universal truths. Like, I know that, like, turn order almost naturally occurs no matter what. Like, people don't tend to speak over each other. They're going to follow a, almost a my turn, then your turn, just in conversation, usually. So... Having like turn order in a game is almost second nature. Like you barely need to explain the concept; it just kind of happens. Mm-hmm. So, so whereas, like, we might, might this this is uh, we might think of of the GM though as being in the same category as like hit points or something. That that's something that D and D invented. But um, that's really interesting that it might not be. Yeah. So one, uh, there's a couple things here in this. Uh, one of them is if we look at it earlier on, like before D and D, we can look even further back. Um, as we're speaking here, I realize that there's a pivotal moment for me in understanding role playing, um, and it probably was the first time my mom read my sister and I Little Women by Louisa May Alcott, in which 
the sisters put on a play. They write it, they um, do all the costuming, they make all the props, they are their characters. And it's clear in the book that this isn't the first play that they've put on and it won't be the last. You know, that one of them is like, oh, and you just love stomping around in boots. You know, and they talk about the apple tree that they pretend is a horse and, and things like that. And I remember hearing, I was probably five. I don't know, I was little. Um, and I remember hearing that, and it's, I'm very sure that that helped shape some of, like, my sense, like, oh, you could do that, like, listening to all the stories that we were listening to at the time, um, and that my sister and I basically took off from there, um, really, and I was older, so I was definitely in a, a more leadership role, but whatever, you know, we both had that sense of, wait, we can make up imaginary worlds. Right. Let's do that. Yes. So it's yeah. so funny. It was like I usually lead off with something like, "What got you into design, and what were you trying to fix about D and D?" It's usually accurate. Yeah, yeah. I I have to tell you, I'm just trying to think Shadowrun. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Uh, did you did it work? Have you fixed it? I haven't been paying attention. I'm just kidding. It, it's it's it sounds like the current one's kind of going down that thing. <laughs> It's having some problems. Uh, so this 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 extension of the apocalypse world brand is not quite right. Uh, umbrella structure umbrella yeah. Sure. I like structure the best of those, but mm -hmm. it, uh, I will leave it to the actual professionals to answer. But 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 to me, it's been really interesting about looking at at Power by the Apocalypse and its evolution. Um, is that it is this weird hybrid space between um generic game like D, D that 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 handles one set of mechanics but it can be applied to a lot of different settings um but you can't quite do that with apocalypse world it looks as if you can from you know if you were to just take apocalypse world and say like oh i can see how the, i could slap some paint on this and turn and you know dungeon world did something pretty similar to that didn't make a lot of mechanical changes but um you the move sets the, the the nuances of it like the you know the monster heart moves are not portable to apocalypse world and vice versa yeah, yeah for sure um and so th they occupy this strange space of like almost anti-generic game where it's the 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 move sets there's a framework for okay you have to have something that that when you encounter danger, you behave in a certain way or or uh, when you want to force somebody to behave the way you want, you you do a move. But it's depending on the game and the context of the rules and everything else, it sort of mutates into its own form each incarnation. And can I say something real quick? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, okay. So what I how I would phrase that is it's generic in setting, but it is not. But it is specific or bound in its drama. It, it, the moves give a drama structure, but not a setting. Yeah. Oh yeah. uh, well, I don't know about that. I think that there's some. Uh, I don't think D and D is a universal system either. I think D and D does its specific thing. And when, okay, so I started playing D&D &D in 1978. 
Wait, um, these people haven't listened to our podcast, which is fair. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't say universal. Then, I said generic, which is not, I, cool. I don't consider right. it the same. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for, thank you for the correction. Yeah. But yes. Um, so, uh, I played, started playing D&D &D in 1978 and then Star Wars came out and we tried to do D&D &D with Star Wars. Like, Star Wars mm -hmm. is D&D. Oh dear. Well, on the plus side, at least the stormtroopers are going to be accurate with missing all the time. <laughs> yeah, sure, that's true. But on that, um, but I feel like I feel like a, the the idea that it's generic and that you can do everything. Hmm. Hmm. And I think that's one of the things that led us to where we are now with so many different games. Like, oh my god. You know, because e even if you go really early, you know, if you just look at, um, you know, Cyberpunk and Shadowrun and um, Traveler and what's that, Alice Lanta and like earlier, the the first explosion of game design. Well, whatever, you know what I mean. Um, like there, if if it was if generic systems worked for everything. We wouldn't make so many other things. Yeah, that's what I'm right. saying. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm not calling Apocalypse World generic either. I'm just saying it's it. There's an interesting like intersection of where its mechanics, like like Kevwar was saying, like there's a dramatic structure that the mechanics scaffold, but like yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like like Apocalypse World. Uh, do you know when I wrote first edition Apocalypse World, I had never seen Beyond Thunderdome. Um, wow. And I watched that movie and I was like, oh my God, they made it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went and saw Fury Road and I said, we have to do a second yeah. edition. But no, what I was going to say is that there's, there's as much um, Sons of Anarchy in Apocalypse World as there is Mad Max. Uh, it's and and boardwalk empire you know it's kind of a a crime thriller ensemble cast crime thriller mm -hmm. kind of game and that's sort of the the larger genre and so like i think as you as you move away from if you stay within that genre the sort of crime thriller or you know maybe just thriller maybe maybe i can go all the way out to thriller um, the sort of HBO thriller dra uh, uh, drama, you know, you know what I'm saying. That Apocalypse World's moves are pretty good for that, with a little bit of rewriting, um, because that's what they're designed for. They aren't designed for specifically the post-apocalyptic thing. They're they're only only little pieces that are specific to that. Um, but then, as you move away from that genre, you really do need to redesign. I kind of hate genres and I made a genre game. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> so many of us that I've talked to um, have, have been like, oh, I tried to fix the system I really loved, you know, and make it do what it, make it give me the experience I thought it was going to give me, but yeah. fell frustratingly short of, you know? Yeah. Um, make, make it fulfill its promises. Yeah. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So you get all these these hacks and these assumptions about like you know, hit points, like you said, or maybe even the GM, because, you know, as we've seen now, the GM responsibilities can be distributed out to uh, 
multiple players or, you know, to the point where you don't have the role anymore. You just have the responsibilities that are uh, you know, scattered. Um, and one of the, like, uh, so as we've been talking uh, on, on this show and we've been going through our thoughts about game design, um, we've thought about them in this way of like, not as ungames as engines of story creation. This is something that's come up before and where, but very few games like represent that idea more than under hallowed Hills does because of the, it's cyclical nature and the, um, the specific lack of mechanical incentive to do what the game's about. Um, and to me that, so the game I'm trying to design has something similar in it where it's got the cyclical nature where I want um, the narrative to be sort of self-generating um, and not, you know, I'm aiming for like a zero prep type thing where you can sit down with some busy adults, have a game, and but not have to do two, three hours of prep. So the kind of games like this are... Um, what's appealing to me, you know? And so where did you, where did you sort of, where did the space open up for you at this point? Because there's, there's been games that I've like, so dogs in the vineyard has a very specific sort of thrust to it. Um, and where did it come to you that, or, or each of you that, that, that what these games are doing are, are giving toolkits for creating narrative. Mm. So, um, my, my answer is pretty much in thousand and one nights, mm -hmm. you know, where I'm like specifically doing that. And then since then of like, here are tools I want to give you about storytelling, about sensual imagery, about um, nest, about about not worrying about your character dying. Yeah, you know, there's just a whole bunch of different stuff going on in there that I'm doing specifically around that. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. do you know Meg's game Thousand and One Nights? I've I've read about it, but I have not actually okay. seen it. No. Well, let let me tell you a little bit about it. It's um incredibly cool. Um, so we all play uh, courtiers. No, I don't. Know. We all play courtiers in the in the Sultan's court. Um, we love each other and are jealous of each other and hate each other. You know, as we will, but we can't disturb the Sultan's peace, and so we have to express ourselves by telling each other stories. And so, uh, you know, I'm the cook. And I will turn to you, the astronomer, and I'll say, I will, astronomer, please tell the story of, or I will say, I'm going to tell the story of, of um, uh, the brother and sister who um, went to the river to fetch water. Would you please play the sister? Um, and captain of the guard, would you please play the bucket? Um, <laughs> No, no, there's there's a thing I need to get to. You so, just want to steal his helmet. So then, so then, like, for just just these 10 minutes or however long it takes, 
I'm the GM, you're the players in this in this inner game, mm-hmm. right? This this story within a story game. But then how that works is you or I or whoever, uh, I guess if I'm the storyteller, it's not me, but you take dice out of a bowl, a die out of a bowl. Meg is looking at me like I don't remember how her game works. And it's kind of true, but... Also, also, I told this today to somebody else, and I'm like, I, I can't... No, I'm, no, I'm okay, trying to get to this. So you take a die out of the bowl, and you say, does the bucket fall in the river? And you get that die as soon as we answer that question, and it doesn't matter what the answer is. But the the die is that question, mm-hmm. right? Does the bucket fall in the river, or um, does the ball in the brother fall in the river, or okay. Okay. does right. the? So no, stop! <laughs> I'm trying to say something here. Um, and so that's where that narrative space opens up. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that die doesn't represent. I hope the bucket falls in yeah. the river. It represents this outstanding question. Mm. Um, what I say is to imagine a die. As a coin spinning in the air, and when it falls, either way, then we'll know our answer. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we don't we don't roll the die to find out whether the bucket falls in the water. We we get the die when the bucket falls in the water, or, or doesn't fall yeah. in the water, or never falls in the water. Um, and so, like that, really, to me, as a as a much more conventional role playing game designer. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes my brain go, you know, when 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 Meg makes that game in two thousand and four or two thousand and five or whatever mm-hmm. that year was. It was published in two thousand. Yeah. Um, uh, blows my mind. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's for me when that narrative space mm-hmm. opens up. Um, and before that, like before that. I had designed Dogs in the Vineyard, mm-hmm. which has that really structured mission-based, yeah. you know, the investigators arrive at the crime scene kind of right. uh, structure. You know, where it's still play to find out, but it's not, it, you know, it's still quite conventional compared to Thousand and One Nights. Yeah, and that's where, like, that's why it was interesting to me because there was, like, like you were saying, there was this this structure that was very. I mean, it's something I like about Dogs in the Vineyard. This escalation, yeah, is, is something that's really cool to me. But but then also, this game is so very different. So we've been working on fairy games for a while and thinking about how to make fairy tale games. You know, um, have you have you seen my uh, game cycle playing nature's year no so playing nature's year is um a cycle of eight short games each one takes you know, between five and t- five minutes and an hour and a half to play um that you can play with absolutely anyone you know your three-year-old cousin or your grandmother or your co-worker or, who's never played a role-playing game before um and i um, I designed those and that I think kind of opened up the beginning of this space because I was designing them in accordance with the natural year, um, in New England. And that's, that was another influence in beginning this fairy game. So when Vincent says we're designing fairy games, 
that's part of the one of the things I look at. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I designed a game called Midsummer Wood, where you're a human being who's sneaking into fairyland in disguise to, to steal fairy treasure. Um, but so uh what story was i going to tell i was at pax pax east and i was talking to stephen dewey who wrote who wrote 10 candles um he had just published a game called to serve her wintry hunger which was a fairy tale game based on one of meg's games in playing nature's year a game called the holly and the ivy but so he and i were talking about it and we were comparing mm -hmm. notes and you know, this idea, I, I, I had also been thinking about circuses for um, reasons, you know, um, but, oh, it's a fairy circus. It's not a post-apocalyptic circus. It's a fairy circus. And they're not called moves. They're called plays, right? This comes into my head, you know, and I, I fall silent in the middle of this conversation so that I can think that through. And, but that, that moment of, you know, they're plays, they're not moves. How do you play this? Um, are you going to make a play for it here or are you just talking? Uh, that really opened those up for me even further than, you know, Apocalypse World's moves are more escalatory, more accomplishment based. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're less so than, than a lot of games. Less so than Dogs in the Vineyard, uh, than its dice system or whatever. Um, but the idea that you call your own place, it's not that you're trying to hit a fictional trigger and the GM agrees that you're seizing something by force or whatever. It's that the, the GM says, how do you want to play this? And you say, well, I'm going to, what's a play? I'm going to... Oh, I'm going to greet them with pleasure. I'm looking at the Firefly Wisp. I'm going to greet them with pleasure. And that's a play. And then we do that. But the idea that you can just call that, you know, yourself, right. you don't have to win the GM over to that. You're you're responsible for calling your own plays. That was in there. And sort of this, this breathing room came into the game uh, at that moment, um, which I think was kind of your question, right? Like, yeah. Like, when did that happen? How did that when happen? Did and it happened, you know, with this this little weird change in vocabulary just opened the space up for me in terms of opening spaces which again ties back to playing games with my sister and uh uh thousand one nights um it comes from when toby was little baby and needing to tell stories to distract him in the car and figuring out like coming up with creative output on the fly mm -hmm. can be really challenging it, it's a yeah. pain sometimes right mm -hmm. i mean we agree on that oh yes <laughs> anyway so i'm I, I i hit upon this thing which now i'm utterly convinced everyone can do which is tell a nursery rhyme for two hours mm -hmm. um and if you haven't tried it do it it's fun um because that that's the space that opens up when you take away some of the, oh my God, I have to fill this space with creative output. And instead you give a tiny little bit, little bit of structure to it, a little bit of support. Um, and Vincent referenced 
you know, talking about um, Thousand One Nights, like Jack and Jill went up the hill to touch a pail of water. Mm-hmm. But I have many times told the story of the noble princess Aziza and her wastrel brother Hassan and how they quested across the desert to the jinn of the well to entreat that he would release water for their people that were that were dying of thirst. And would you please play Hassan and were, you know, would you play as the princess? Would you play the jinn of the well? Would you play the camel they ride? And you play the tiger that stalks the camel and camel they ride. Ah, and would you play, please, the wind that whispers to them the secrets of the universe? You know, it's finding base and then making sure that space isn't too cluttered. Right. You know, because if you try to tell all of Moby Dick in a role-playing game and you said, okay, I'm going to tell Moby Dick, uh-uh, oh, God, no, please don't. Yeah. Um, but if you tell you know, Mary had a little lamb, or better yet, um, oh, no, something's lost. Lucy Lockett lost her pocket. Oh, God, something's lost. There you go. Go, tell it for an hour. You'll be fine. <laughs> Well, it's basically acting almost like writing prompts at that point. Yes. Like, what I've seen is that you kind of can build a story very easily based on just a very small, limited amount of structure. Yeah. You don't need a lot, but you do need it to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's something that I actually found was a major problem with the social skills in almost every game mm. is you basically needed the equivalent of like, moves basically like in most games like dnd is really bad for it your conversation boils down to um use your diplomacy skill and roll for it and it's like but i want you to to role play it out that's not enough to work with (laughs) like (laughs) like there's a lot of people that especially uh role players like let's face it there is a little bit of truth to, you know, the the antisocial people playing role-playing games. That they can get into role-playing, but ask them to have, like, a conversation without tripping over their own two feet. It's a learning set. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's something you definitely learn as you go along, but there's definitely a lot of players that... They don't know how to actually structure a conversation. And most people haven't considered sit down for a few hours and actually try piecing one together piecemeal. (laughs) And it's like, you can do that. And you can actually build a conversation in chunks. Mm -hmm. So that's how I actually ended up structuring my thing, because it's basically what you were saying is you need just a small amount of structure so that people have prompts that say, okay, we need to do something here. We don't know necessarily what it is, but there has to be enough of a baseline to tell you that there's information that needs to go here of some sort. Right. Even a blank space is enough sometimes, you know, uh, just a defined, yeah, even just rigidly in the defined blank. area of doubt and uncertainty. Yeah. yeah. As long as you know that there's something that goes there, you know vaguely what that kind of something is, it's usually not too big of a problem. Yeah. Like you said, with like the fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. as soon as you know that Mary had a little lamb, you know that there's Mary, there's a lamb, there's probably something that's going to 
be bad that happens and it's like well what do shepherds usually deal with uh, apparently wolves and goliath <laughs> <laughs> i i told a great one today um about uh because the question i ask when i talk about this with people who are you know asking about storytelling and gaming and whatever usually it's like what's the first fairy or first um on that pops in your head and it was uh uh the little bo peep has lost her sheep and my god that's amazing i'm gonna use that because oh my god it's lost you know anytime something is lost in a, it's it's a, it's a good time in a nursery mm -hmm. rhyme because eventually you're gonna find out you know by the end of the rhyme you got the whole story structure right yep. there great leave them alone and they'll come home awesome done <laughs> you can tell that is like there's like so much anyway whatever. no that's that's no, you're right, but it's like I've been having the same sort of issue with my with my game. Is like, how do I, how do I scaffold minimally, yeah. you know, j yeah. just so that you like you just want to give the player just enough so that they can right. take off on their own, yep. and not too much yeah. so that they're like, oh, I forget how to X or wait, exactly. what what was it before? Uh, yeah. Do I, you yeah. know, what's the canon here in the Forgotten Realms? Are the Red Wizards like aligned with the Purple Dragon Knights? I don't remember. <laughs> And, 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 you, but you, like, that's too much. I think for most people, obviously the lore is fun and all that stuff, but, but in the middle of a game, it's much more interesting to go like, uh, well, do the, are the red wizards aligned with the purple dragon knights? Yeah, and then exactly. I don't know, but let's find out, you know, that, and the, the play to find out thing in naturally inserts in those places where, mm -hmm where you want to do the minimal scaffolding where you want to just have here's just enough to jump off but but once you jump off you're on your own you know yeah, well, yeah. the easiest thing i'd say there is put in what's a natural prompt so in that case like instead of asking are they say the red wizards were allied with them right but that's and then what past happened? tense yeah. what <laughs> happened? that yeah. immediately makes you go yeah what uh -huh. happened yeah 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 and that's how i ended up structuring my the my my thread system is that, like it's just the the questions that the players naturally ask of the world but there's an impediment to the yep. answer and so then the impediment is the is the game oh yep. and oh <laughs> hey can you hear go. us again we're back. we're back yeah you, okay. you, your thread system oh yeah the thread system it's the way it works is the players naturally ask a question and if the question can't be immediately answered it generates a story thread and the impediment to the getting the question answered is what you interact with um mm -hmm. and so the the and that way in that way the the world and the narrative structure itself out of what the players are interested in um and and that was like when I started that rewrite, like in May, I was like, oh man, this is totally, I have to rewrite the entire freaking game now. <laughs> <laughs> it will be the first time, and I'm still betting it won't be the last. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. That's, that's a common thing. Okay, good. That sounds really neat. That sounds really neat. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, I'm trying to figure out this, the narrative, like the self-generating narrative thing. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm pretty close to like having something interesting nailed down where it's, um, 
the 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 there's like two character sheets to the game there's everybody's little character booklet they have and then there's a large easel or large piece of butcher paper in the center of the table that's like the campaign's character sheet right sort of that that is you ask start asking questions and then the answers inform and then you may go off and then one thing you can do because your characters can see fate is you can tie together certain story elements and uh weave them um to, to make to make the narrative to force weird events to happen essentially um but yeah the, it i've been so interested in something like this where where there's a cyclical nature to the mm -hmm. the play uh blades in the dark sort of like clued me into this sort of with the uh up you know basically action downtime thing where it was just a flip but the yep. way you guys have the um this summer winter the, the seasons rotation and and the fact that you can affect it is interesting to me because that that's like it's a meta it's like the characters reaching back up through the game into the meta story yep um which is something that i'm like the characters in my game do also and so i was reading this and going like holy crap they scooped me on it um, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's so but it but it's it's different you know like i it yeah. my, my my takes on it my take is my take and your take on it your take and i really like the way your um the binding you have on on this because it's you've got this this setting that is the the what what how would i it's not perfect isn't the right word but it, it's like it's like a puzzle that came together on this seasonal circus thing it's like of course it'd be fairies of course it'd be there'd be going back and forth between the mortal world and the and the fairy world and there's so many elements here that are coming together to to scaffold this story creation engine with minimal necessary force because the, the the fairy idea is so like you like you get it immediately you don't have to do any more explaining you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. except for an hour yeah sorry <laughs> to me to me it needs, it needs an hour of explaining <laughs> to, to normal people no but <laughs> yeah sure uh, thanks Matt. <laughs> well, and, and i mean you know we we hope to do some of that work for you in the book yeah right the minimal necessary force of design is something that's very interesting to me. And I feel like there's, there's so many good elements here of it. That's, um, I don't know. I'm just, I feel like I'm just lavishing praise at this point, <laughs> <laughs> but, well, but it's true. No, it's, I like it. Yeah. What, what I can say about that is that that's how it feels to me too. And it's really fun to work mm -hmm. on. It's really fun to watch the pieces just come together. And, um, you know, you don't always get that. And so when you get it, like you, you enjoy it, you know, it's, it's that weird rush of like, oh, all the pieces fit. I got this. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I can see where this is going. And there's like an end and like, yeah, this could, this could be really cool. And what's what else is like, oh, somebody else is going to do something really cool with this. That's yeah. that for me is like the when I when I got to this, my the part I'm at in my game, and I was like, oh, crap, somebody else could do something really neat with this that I cannot anticipate. And that was to me. Aww. <laughs> it's it feels amazing to be in the middle of this Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. Like 
it's like a year ago, not even a year ago, like, I don't know, months ago, it, eight months felt like uh, we, I like was, I didn't want to say too clearly what, because it still felt so far away. Oh, yeah. um, and there's so many pieces um, and just being willing as designers to be patient with the, the pieces as they settle in and be like, oh, that's the piece. And that's the piece mm-hmm. um, has been a really neat practice. Uh, and, you know, in ways different than some of our other designs where it's like, all right, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to design this because this is the game that's pounding in my brain or this is the thing I've committed to do or whatever. But this has had a whole different fascinating pacing to it. That's interesting. Like you've got between you quite a pretty broad spread of different game types. Like they're not that similar to one another. Yeah. So what do you find that there's any kind of initial spark for an idea for like why each game needs to be its own unique game when you start it? They're all different. (laughs) I mean, uh, I mean. We have the, we call it the family curse. We have the curse. Yeah. Like our, our poor kid, he's, he's 19. He'll come downstairs in the morning and I'll say, oh my God, guys, I made a game. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dad, I have an idea for a game. Oh. <laughs> Do not get away from this. But, um, but it's really, really great watch our kids come into the family business right you know what to watch um to watch any of them really yeah. talking with vincent about a game idea or you know i'll go away for a couple hours and i'll come back and and then, and then elliot will say oh i i did those edits let's let's go on to the next bit really cool yeah. really cool that is awesome that is that is so interesting i mean it's as I, my wife and I work together on, on my game, um, she is a vicious editor um, oh. and uh, has improved it a lot. Uh, but she's not, she's not a designer. She's not, that's not what gets her going. She's not interested in that, but she really likes shredding my stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, I really like the moving into like when you like you said like when you like stuff starts like coming together and um it's interesting because like my day job isn't design obviously uh but the process you described of like oh this this is where this goes i get it like this is this feels natural here um Uh And it's almost like it doesn't, you don't, you're not designing it. You're just sort of like listening to the design that's somewhere out there. I don't yeah. know how to put it any different than that, but that's, it feels like the more I, I get close to the end of my game, it feels like that I'm listening to it rather than telling it what to do. Yeah. 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 We, um, yes. not shut up and they pound on the back of your eyeballs until you sit down and write them and the yep. games that around like annoying cats and you're like just get over here would you <laughs> you know and they're like no i'm over here <laughs> and that's 
that's that's a game design in my <laughs> experience. And sometimes they turn and it's a sustainable design. So it's also yeah. writing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's another thing that happens where there's times when you know in our in our production schedule, uh, everything has to a little bit wait its turn. So we had the uh, love letters from the Baker House Banzine and the Burned Over Hack book and the uh, Apocalypse World Ref book to get out and the King is Dead. So we had stuff we gotta we had to like sort those. Um, and each time what each time a step on any of those would complete, it would open up brain space. We're back again to how space opens up. It would open up brain sp space for the next piece to fall in. Um, sometimes it was just a playbook. Sometimes it would be the season pinwheel, you know, other other pieces. Um, and that's that's really neat. And now that like the deck is clear, more or less, and like the Kickstarter is underway and under Hollow Hills is a thing and people are playing it and it's amazing. You're doomed. And so now I'm working on a new game. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> that's that's the opposite of how my game works because like every time i hit a wall in my main one like I, another one falls out like 30 pages yeah. Yeah. like a totally new game just like and i'm like oh what do i do with this now and then that that removes the, the roadblock somehow yeah no like like when you design a game you create a negative space of the games you didn't design yeah. This vast right. negative space. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to work through some of those games before you can proceed with the game you're actually working on. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. To say, you know, this is not the game I'm designing. Here it is. It's done. You know. Um, yeah, no, I, I get that a lot where uh, a roadblock in one game means that there's another game I have to design first. Yeah, I think Tex Avery said there's every, everybody's got like 10,000 bad drawings in them. Um, yeah. Maybe everybody's got like. 30 bad games. I hope it's only 30. <laughs> no, it's, no. <laughs> it's way more. <laughs> Some... All those ideas mm -hmm. to jump out and you get to a, a, a metaphorical shelf so you can cannibalize them for parts. Yeah. No, somebody, we were giving an interview, what was it? And somebody asked me how many games I had abandoned. <laughs> And, you know, Meg said hundreds, and I said hundreds, hundreds mm -hmm. of games. Yeah. And that's true. That. I think they were trying to abandon their first. Yeah. <laughs> like, games. you should not be afraid to abandon games. Yeah. Um, and I think it goes, for me, a little bit in the same place of, like, if you're reading a book and you're not enjoying it, really think about whether you need to keep reading it. Right. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. the answer is absolutely yes, you really need to. But sometimes if you're like, oh, I picked this up for fluff, fun reading, and I'm, I'm, I'm just not getting it, put it down! Yeah. For God's sake, please! Yeah. Um, I think that place, and this is something I see with young designers, like a feeling that every de design they come up with, they have to finish. And it... it that is not true. <laughs> that is the best piece of advice that has ever been given on this podcast. <laughs> I, I think it's it's true, and it's I think a difficult thing for people to grasp the idea that just um, 
because you've invested so much of yourself and your thoughts into a, a concept that maybe it's time to move on. Um, and whether that's reading a book or writing it or writing game, there's uh, it's hard to let go of the investment that you've put into it and say, this is worth it for the experience of having tried it, but yeah. I'm ready to move on to the next. Yeah. 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 There's, there's a thing uh, I've seen this a thousand times. I've seen a thousand designers get stuck on a thousand games. Um, there's a thing where you have a vision for what the game should mean and you have a vision for how the game should work and they don't fit right yet. oh yeah and you can't give either of them up and i've watched designers you know struggle to abandon a game for years years five six seven eight years well, and and, and because they can't resolve the simple that solution that, is break uh, it into two games <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 and another place that i find people do that is where they're their vision for the game and the mechanics that they've chosen are absolutely at odds. Yep. Yeah. Yes. There's a. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's really odd that people get hung up on specific mechanics. Like the only purpose yep. for a mechanic really is to express the concept in the game. So if your mechanic is not expressing that concept, use a different mechanic. I mean, it might be a really amazing mechanic, but if it doesn't do what you're supposed to do... See, but I'm stuck there right now on a game. I, I have these <laughs> ideas. You know, I'm I'm working on a game called Chasing Shadows that, that our youngest, Toby, really wants me to finish because he wants to play it about you know, young people investigating supernatural mysteries or whatever. And, uh... I also have this idea that maybe it could work in this this technical way, the way I've talked about with somebody. You know, it's it's some weird technical idea that I have, and they don't go together. And I know they don't go together. I can see from here that they don't go together, but I can't set it aside. I can't set either aside to work on the other. Stuck. The I'm best stuck. Thing I can suggest for that: just put them as much in a vacuum as possible and just store them away basically as something to use later on in a different game because i have like a pile of <laughs> game mechanics that are just basically archived for later use yeah no i mean i know i know that's what i have to do but i sure don't want to yeah exactly. easier said than done <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah it's still the correct solution <laughs> I know it is. I know it is. <laughs> I don't uh, want to do it. Um, <laughs> on the topic of you guys saying that you've talked with a bunch of different designers and um, you're now both of you seen as uh, people that have a lot of experience in this field in, in indie role-playing game design. Do you still feel that you're on the, like, indie trying to figure things outside of things or do you feel that you're in a position of mentorship and that you you have sort of an idea of how your design process works really like how, how how um i guess okay. refined is your we lose them again oh no no we're here okay yeah. oh, well that's a first <laughs> uh, basically what's your what's your vision of yourself as professionals in the industry okay 
you've just asked like five different questions. <laughs> um, so I'm going to try, but it's late and I'm. Yeah. Um, okay. But here's the deal. Um, there, on a, and this is a tiny quick answer. Break the difference between indie and figure things out. Um, I, I think we can just move on from that. Like, sure. Indie to me means I own the fruits of my labor. That's all mm -hmm. that means. Um, okay. As and, dirty, dirty, filthy capitalist. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have nothing against that. I was just saying. <laughs> um, trying to figure figure things out. I think that that should be a constant state of game design in a way. Like, how am I? What am I doing? I get complacent and be like, oh, this is the, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be up to my own standards. It's not going to say anything meaningful in any way that I want to. It, um, so, yeah, I, I need to be trying to figure things out. Like, how the hell am I going to make this game? Um, so that's that. Uh, in terms of mentorship, um, like, PBTA is a whole deal. And mm -hmm. we've we did that on purpose to be like, how can we get the tools in the hands of the people? How can we, how can we read, what medium do we have to reach across out there to people who feel like they don't have the tools and aren't able to take part in this? How do we give them the tools? Yeah. Um, as much as we can, you know, to, you know, to any, anybody out there who's, so that's, that's our answer there for mentorship. Or one of our answers. One of our answers. One of our answers. Um, uh, professionals in the industry. Good lord, um, there's a piece there that is fascinating and bizarre to me because it conjures up so many ideas of like what that would mean in terms of like our work schedule, our uh, financial status, our like you know, do we have employees? We've had people ask, like, we'd like to intern with you. I'm like, doing what? Do you want to come do the dishes? That would be great. You know? Um, so... What blacksmiths did for centuries. Sure, but, like, we have three apprentices that we're trying to read. <laughs> <laughs> so, and they, they won't do and the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> time. Yeah. You have to gamify so, it. That's the thing. Um, <laughs> yeah but do the dishes around <laughs> anyway but um so that's a very interesting question you know um i've definitely had the experience several times of people when we talk really frankly about where we're at and what we're doing and you know what our numbers are and what that means for us and like our background and our current, you know, whatever. And people are like, oh my God, you're struggling like along just all of us. I'm like, yes, yay, yes. Um, so, so there's that, like professional in the industry. I, I feel like I have experience and things to say about storytelling and writing a book and running a, a crowdfunding campaign and maybe a little bit of trying to comport oneself in a in a compassionate right. manner in public yeah. spaces <laughs> but like 
am I a professional in an industry? I don't know. I don't know. Pretty sorry industry if we're the professional. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to get really technical, all a professional means is you get paid for it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but that's not what like, the phrase "professional in the industry" no. carries. Well, uh, I mean, that's not the weight that that carries when I look at it. Um, because I'm multitasking here, looking at a professional conference for museum work, and I'm going, "Oh my god!" You know, so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. I feel like a busker. Yeah. I'm I'm here on the internet, <laughs> hoping people. Seriously, we went to the we went as part of our research for the for under Hollow Hills. We went to the Buskers Festival in Halifax, um, which was really cool. Yeah. And go if you can. Um, yeah. Used to live there. So it was really fun. We we watched people busking. busking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and uh, they worked awfully hard. They do. I, I'd love to show Halifax, but Honestly, I think the Boston one was better. Really? I, I'd like to be like, yeah, the Nova Scotia one is awesome. The one thing I can say about the Halifax is specifically the Nova Scotia International Tattoo. So if you ever go to Halifax again, time it for when that's on. Uh, we will and we will, I'm pretty sure. That's an odd recommendation to get on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, I'm in Nova Scotia. There's like yeah. five people in the whole fucking province. I have to chill it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, we had a wonderful time. We had a wonderful time in Nova Scotia uh, last summer. I'm going to say about the, the busker fair. Other than that, we went and they worked awfully hard and they uh, deserved every penny they got and then some. And if if you see yourself as a busker in the industry, then I guess uh, that that works well for us because I think uh, the the stuff that you've been providing to indie developers and just in terms of like opening up some of the design space, like some of the best designs I think are when people get into design, they they often take from the games that they enjoy and they like things that they've already experienced, and that's sort of the easiest first steps. And I think with the the kinds of games that you and Meg have been designing, there's so much play and so much innovation that I think has gotten people excited and interested about trying these different aspects of design. So um, that's the kind of busting, busking that we're um, super happy to support. So Yep. That's, um, that's really sweet of you to say. Thank you. Well, it's accurate. It <laughs> the it's, all, it's all so sweet. It's good to hear. Like, thank you. Yeah, of oh. course. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's, there's I mean, no denying that, like, just powered by the apocalypse, the entire, it basically added an entire new section to role-playing that basically didn't exist before that. Yeah. So. I mean, new, and, and, and so many new designers have come into, in, into the space with, you know, w without mentioning armor class. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's refreshing and, and nice. Um so it's just like, and, and then and then also like building on on that with uh, with uh, blades in the dark and then the forge in the dark stuff that people are putting out, um, mm -hmm. you know, you know, stacks of these games based off of these structures that are inviting hacking 
and and inviting tinkering and and look you know and the and the design impact is relatively transparent from from the point of view of somebody reading the book you know whereas like the design right. impact yeah. on tweaking something in D&D is guesswork at best sometimes yeah. and yeah. in something like Blades in the Dark or or or, or Apocalypse World or um or under hallowed hills or 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 you know a story game where the the point to point connections of mechanics is, are very transparent like it's it's much easier to see how you could hack something you yep. know and and having that open has been super helpful for i mean for me for one and then i'm sure tons of other people so yep. yeah thanks well that's awesome thank you it's probably say someone in the token person who makes uh <laughs> Uh, PBTA hacks in the legit, uh, <laughs> but I really have just been enjoying listening to this conversation. Awesome. Uh, I'm sure we'd uh, keep it going for hours, picking your brains. But uh, in the interest of letting you get some sleep tonight, um, yeah, should we? Well, uh, yeah, we're okay. we're very grateful. Um, yeah, sleep is for the week. Is there, uh, is there the, the week in the old, like, like, like me? Like, like, I, get to, I get to go eat fresh out of a river tomorrow, so I'm. Oh, great. <laughs> it is going to be very old fresh. That's more fun. <laughs> I think I'm kidding. <laughs> They're like, oh, uh, okay, no. So tomorrow is the uh, Connecticut River Watershed Cleanup Day, mm -hmm. where all throughout the Connecticut River Watershed, teams of people go out to the riverbanks and in, in the river and haul out trash. Tons and tons oh, wow. and tons. Yeah, it's really That's cool. Great. Yeah. That's and great. in our town, you know, in a lot of these Connecticut River watershed towns, they're hundreds of years old. So sometimes the stuff that gets hauled out is like, you know, Dunkin' Donuts cups. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's pieces of ceramics from, you know, the 1700s. Wow. So That's, That's pretty cool. cool. Well, enjoy. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you have good finds. <laughs> wow, everybody. So uh, for Catrice, Cavour, Mark, uh, Vincent, Meg, and, and myself, Rob, this has been a very awesome episode of Flail Forward. Uh, thanks for listening. And um, good night. Because it is night where you are. Don't forget that. It is. Yeah. Uh, actually, it's technically morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh no! It's just night. Whenever you listen to this podcast, it's night, regardless of reality. I I love that. I accept that as true. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks so much Kevor. for having us on. Oh, thanks for coming. Thanks for. We coming. really appreciate it. Best of luck with your Kickstarter and everything as well. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it seems like it's going well so far. So we will yeah. uh, properly shill it <laughs> to, to our one listener. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> <Well>, one listener. <laughs> See, hear that? They love you. Give them 15 bucks. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs>